0: this is the aussie animal show on AAA radio my name's rob armstrong welcome to the wildlife i hope you find tonight's program interesting we revisit Hattakukine national park this time to get a view from the other side of the fence i do an interview with brian walters Biologist, zoologist from the Department of Conservation and was involved in Hattar from the early 80s right through into the 90s. Great stuff. And I do thank Brian for making himself available, tackling this very difficult issue and owning up to some of the mistakes that the department made. Listeners to this program realise we've been attacking RSPCA for selling kangaroo meat products. The organisation that's charged with protecting and preventing cruelty to animals was profiting from the sale of kangaroo products produced by the industry for 50 years they've claimed was cruel and inhumane. Well, last week, RSPCA Victoria removed all Roo products from their online shop. And now it appears RSPCA nationally have done the same thing with one exception we're still waiting for RSPCA Tasmania to pull out the kangaroo products from their online store I chat with Alyssa Wormel from the Victorian Kangaroo Alliance Alyssa I would like to read an email reply from the RSPCA but I can't (laughs) There hasn't been any. Have you heard anything at all?
1: No, no. So we haven't heard back from the RSPCA. So we sent an open letter. Uh, It was signed at that point by 21 organisations, actually signed by 24 now. But, yeah, we we haven't had a response. But they have removed all the kangaroo products from their online store. So I presume that
0: they got it. WA Vic queensland new south wales all the kangaroo products are removed and still appear on rspca tasmania's site
1: yeah so the way i understand it it seemed like so they've got a national store which is rspca world for pets and most of the branches link into that national store but victoria and tasmania had their own online stores so that's that's the way that as far as I can tell, that's that's the setup. And so, first of all, RSPCA Vic removed them from their online store, and then the national the national store has now removed kangaroo products as well. But yeah, RSPCA Tasmania is uh, still holding out as of a couple of hours ago, at least. Uh,
0: the, the message I got is that it may be removed tomorrow.
1: Uh, from Tasmania. Yes oh okay well maybe i'll hold off emailing them
0: tonight yes Well, last week's program which uh, i had to cancel because rspca victoria withdrew kangaroo meat from sale uh was basically an attack on them and told the whole world what a pack of mongrels they are but uh i wasn't as polite as you were Um, thank you for your work pointing out the uh, policies of rspca and how their decision to sell kangaroo meat is in breach of their own policies and guidelines. So thank you for that, Alyssa.
1: Yeah, no worries. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of RSPCA policies now. <laughs> I went through them all with a bit of a fine tooth comb. Um, but yeah, look, I feel that they probably, once they thought about it, you know, and saw it all written down, they would see that they really can't justify selling it, you know, in accordance with their policies, that it they just they can't be selling it. Uh, and so, yeah, I like to I like to think that that helped. And obviously, you know, the work that you've done uh, with the radio show and getting in contact with them and, and other individuals as well who've been putting pressure on them in various ways, I think it's added up and they've hopefully put two and two together and and realised that it's really not on and really inconsistent with their policies. That said, I mean, I would love to hear from them directly because my concern is that it's just a holding measure like that they're getting a lot of blowback and they figure they'll just take it down for now whilst you know whilst we're we're sort of focusing on it so i mean i would really really like to hear from them and just just to say like you know yes we've reevaluated that it's not consistent with our policies and we won't be stocking those products so then you know because that would be positive for them as well because then we can thank them for coming to that decision so we can you know put something positive out about that i mean obviously they would have to get rspca tasmania to take the products down as well but i mean ultimately if we can make it a positive thing for people to to do the right thing by kangaroos and that benefits us
0: all just out of interest also if you and if you don't mind the open Mm -hmm. letter Mm -hmm. uh, are you going to post that online or is it available online
1: Well, that was the plan. I was planning to post it tonight, actually. But since they've removed it, removed the products, I probably won't now because it's a bit redundant. And there's no point sort of stirring up anger towards them when they've actually taken it down. So, I mean, I was planning on passing that open letter on to RSPCA Tasmania as well, just to say, you know, look, everyone else has taken it down you're the last man standing you know <laughs> when are you going to come to the party kind of thing but other than that i probably won't post it online uh unless they if they start selling it again i definitely would
0: the only reason i asked Alyssa is that i felt that it was a excellent learning tool for people to understand the way policies uh, need to be interpreted with consideration and care for the animal i, I mean their policies are very straightforward they were just completely in breach
1: yeah and and by their own by their own terms as well like this is the thing that their own representatives have clearly like i wasn't saying anything novel in this letter to them i was pretty much echoing exactly what representatives from within rspca have said because obviously there's a lot of really good people who work for rspca and and have high standards and have spoken out against the kangaroo industry including at the new south wales inquiry You know, saying that there's major animal welfare issues associated with the trade, that it is driven by money rather than necessity, all the exact same things that I was saying. So basically just pointing out the fact that them selling it is inconsistent, not only with their policies, but with the work of their actual representatives as well. So it's really not, you know, doing them a disservice as well.
0: The thing that interests me and why I ask is that, as I said, I think it would be a great educational tool to look at the work you did very quickly to get this letter together. And also, who ended up co-signing it? What groups or individuals? Who was involved?
1: Um, So it was a mix of both, a mix of, well, yourself, of course, and a mix of academics, so, yeah, ecologists and zoologists and different organisations, some big, some small, but essentially, it was, it was a good showing from from a variety of organisations, you know, looking at, you know, e- everywhere from animal rights, animal welfare, wildlife group and uh, wildlife carer groups, you know. Um, so, yeah, a really nice selection came on board. And were so people were so positive and supportive about it, which are really, you know, I was really grateful for that because I did put a lot of work into it. I pulled quite a few 3AMs to get that done. And so it was really nice that so many people um, came on board and wanted to be part of it.
0: You should continue with putting forward this open letter and making it available to people because Mm -hmm. RSPCA appear... Now, I could be wrong about this. Just because they don't answer my emails doesn't mean they're pleading the fifth on the grounds that may incriminate them (laughs) that I'm being told they can't speak to me over the phone. Not they don't want to speak to me. They can't speak to me over the phone. Yeah. And they say, we can't comment on that. So they're closed ranks and shutting down. We need a public statement and an acknowledgement from RSPCA. So all the people that support them both Mm. emotionally and financially all those volunteers know what the organization is doing and how they're going
1: yeah i agree i think a public statement would be really um would be really wonderful and just something so that we have like a concrete assurance that it won't happen again as well that this was just a blip and that they're not supportive of the commercial industry because their policies don't allow them to be supportive of the commercial industry and, you know if they're not going to sort of actively speak out against it the very least they can do is not you know have this you know basically promote the products and and by selling them that's you know, implied
0: support and promotion of the products so the thing that drove me crazy as i mentioned in our last program in last interview we did because i quite often searched the word kangaroo meat on my computer yeah. I, I, my Facebook page every day was being flooded with ads for by, yeah. the RSPCA for rib cages of kangaroos, for tendons mm-hmm. of kangaroos, and underneath the profits from these products will stop cruelty to animals. Yeah, <laughs> go figure. <hey? laughs> Look, if we got a, a, even a reply to, from RSPCA that says, after a policy review, the products have been removed. I would accept that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted with that. That would be great. You know, that would be,
1: what am I saying? That would be fantastic.
0: (laughs) I would rather if they said, look, I don't know what happened. It was a bit of a brain fade. These two guys with ponytails come into the office and, and convinced me to sign up for this third party promotional campaign. Yeah, it was
1: Gary from Purchasing. It's
0: his fault. He's not here anymore. (laughs) Gary's gone. He he won't make that mistake again. (laughs) You know, I mean, something at the moment. They're shutting up, closing the door, not letting anyone have a chance to speak to them about this issue. Yeah. And they're just hoping it'll all go away.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, I'm really I really am hopeful that this is good news and that this that it's done and dusted and that they've yeah, made that decision not to sell it anymore. But at the same time, you know, I think anyone who works in sort of campaigning of any sort knows not to, you know, not to be too hopeful about things and not to be complacent. So it would just be nice to have that confirmation.
0: Yeah, as we've said in previous, keep the t-shirt. You might need it again.
1: Exactly. Keep the open letter.
0: You're the El Presidente of VKA. You do whatever you feel is right. But Mm. it is an open letter, so it needs to be out in the open.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, Okay, very, very quickly, just touching on Victoria, the mid-year report. I saw Mm. you publish some figures, and it's horrific.
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: We're talking about 53,000 kangaroos shot for the pet food industry in Victoria, and they're the ones we know about.
1: They gave a specific number
0: just under forty thousand, i think it was yeah and
1: so i extrapolated from that the number
0: i I think your numbers are low due to the conditions i think i think there's more joeys in pouch and more joeys at foot than your figure so
1: yeah and it's just a guesstimate like because nobody knows right so (laughs) i mean going by um you know the estimate of how many uh female kangaroos would have young at foot and young in the pouch i came to that figure but yeah, and I mean of course the other thing with those figures is it doesn't include the ones that are wounded and escape.
0: And we're seeing and, more of those surfacing every day.
1: Yeah. And it also it doesn't include kangaroos that are shot under non commercial permits. So it is it's a horrific number. Yeah, so we're looking at fifty three point five thousand kangaroos killed already this year until the, the end of
0: June. So that's not for the year that's no, for six months half.
1: yeah first half of the year
0: um, um, look at the department's done a wonderful job checking that all the shooters are doing the right thing what was it
1: <laughs> so seven planned inspections and frankly i think planned inspections are a joke and you know i've got a lot i could say about this actually because last year when they did the quarterly quarterly reports they included unplanned inspections which I believe I have to go back and check my records, but I think it was four. So they they last year they uploaded um, or they provided three the first three quarters um, of the year in these quarterly reports, and out of that I believe it was four unplanned inspections and a, and a handful of planned inspections, but then they never released the final quarter. And they released instead an annual report, which had a different sort of wording. So they had percentage of active shooters subject to an unplanned inspection. But an active shooter is one that's killed a certain number of kangaroos. Like I think it was over 600. Sorry, I, I hadn't realized we'd be talking about this or I would have brushed up on my numbers. But so essentially, they've, they've fiddled around with the numbers to make it sound like a decent number of shooters were subject to unplanned inspections. And I've been trying quite hard to get that document, that fourth quarter for 2021. They actually told me that they didn't do quarterly reports for 2021. And I said, well, yes, you did. And here they are. (laughs) (laughs) So where's the last one? And yeah, so I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I might have to do an FOI for that one. Yeah. Because obviously they don't want us having those figures because now in the quarterly reports, they're not including the unplanned inspections. So they're not even listed. So I'm like, does that mean that they're not doing them anymore? Because, Or was it just that the numbers were so embarrassingly low that it's better just to not make people think about it? <laughs> <No.
0: clears throat> Look, there's a whole series of numbers, figures, statistics, and none of them are the real situation. They're either artificially low, artificially high, to create the narrative. So dodgy. It's so, so dodgy. I don't believe one-third of the the kangaroos shot in the first half of 2022 that one-third were female. Mm. I believe they shot whatever they could find.
1: I think often one-third is pretty consistent with the – you know the sort of overall national average. Some are a bit less, and some are a bit more. This is what, according to the shooters, obviously. Which this is the major problem with all of these records: is that they're all um, shooter self-reporting, essentially. And that's why they don't even add up. Like there's always inconsistencies in there as well, which the reports note those inconsistencies. But you know, a, a reason obviously for for less females is not concern for the joeys. It, it's the fact that um, commercially they're worthless. Than the males because the males are um, are bigger, so and they're paid per kilo for kangaroos. So that's it's nothing to do with looking after joeys that they have less females. It's just
0: greed. The other thing is the job within the mob of certain kangaroos. It's the female's job to get the young at foot joeys away from a, a threat, whereas mm-hmm. the male's job to stand and defend the mob.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is why
0: they're gunned down in bigger numbers. Also, as you pointed out, financially, cost per travel, cost per bullet, cost per hour in the field has to be weighed up against the kilo rate at the end. So it's better to shoot males and you don't have to chase them. They'll stand well, for you.
1: That's the thing. It's it's canned hunting, essentially, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, when you shine a spotlight on an animal and they're frozen in place, plus that tendency for the big boys to hang around, the big men to wait to the well, others get away it's just shooting fish in a barrel like it's not there's you know spotlighting animals is in most cases illegal because it's dangerous for people as well as you know unsportsmanlike as the two would say I'm sure there's a better term for that but you know the it's not it's not hunting it's shooting you know it's
0: it's not harvesting You're Not, picking not harvesting.
1: You're oh gosh I hate that term yeah, me too. what a euphemism hey it's accepted that people call it harvesting and culling when it's kangaroos it's not you know it's not harvesting or culling like
0: anyway I could go on and on about that it drives look, me crazy look we won't this happens every time I said look I'm um, I've got this happening got that happening <laughs> can we do a quick interview yeah yeah sure just you know five ten minutes And what people don't realize, we were chatting for 24 minutes before we hit the. No, we're shockers, aren't we? But one last uh, quick one for you. And I'm waiting for a reply from Delp over this. Mm -hmm. The pet food industry in Victoria is harvesting kangaroos. Mm -hmm.
2: They're they're
0: selling the rib cages, they're selling the leg bones, they're selling meat product. They're selling kangaroo ears, for God's sake, as a treat. You so grim, isn't it? What happens to the hides from the Victorian kangaroos?
1: I believe they're mostly exported.
0: They do enter the national skin trade. Mm. I can't get the department to say that. Really? Yep.
1: Uh, I have a document somewhere um, that might help you with that one. I'll have to um, dig it up.
0: No problems at all. I just thought I'll throw that one at you because that's a, a pretty simple question.
1: Yeah, and I uh, my understanding is is that yeah they are exported in the most most part. I mean there are there are companies in Australia that use skins as well, mm. but not many comparatively. Like somebody, um, one of our supporters the other day sent me an email with a pair of men's shoes made out of kangaroo leather that are being sold for the equivalent of about fifteen hundred dollars. Um, so it was like nine hundred and fifty pounds, I think it was. And, you know what a racket is that? Like you know, it's, kangaroos are free; they don't have to look after them, um, they don't have to do anything for them. Just pluck them out of the wild, and you know what a what an absolute ripper trade for these people. No wonder they're you know making such an effort to try and sweep all this under the rug when it's such a valuable
0: product. This was first driven home to me by the late Dr. John Orty, traveling to a protest or arrest it's something John turned to me as he's driving along and he said Rob if you ever see a, a pair of shoes that says made from Italian leather they're kangaroo mm, well, this was an Italian brand I believe actually yeah. and he said all those top brands of very expensive shoes are all kangaroo and it's and this would have been 1983 Mm. 1984, perhaps, he said the kangaroo hide is making more money than every other aspect of the kangaroo industry. And from the Nike protest, we're seeing that's probably true because figures like 70% of the income from the kangaroo industry is from the sale of hide, the K-leather
1: yeah it's certainly a very lucrative product and it's quite highly prized as well yeah oh so i'm not sure where this it's an italian name of the company in any case in case i'm not sure they're italian but yeah it, it it's you know it's one of those things i know that history is going to look back and judge this it's just an obvious you know wildlife exploitation racket it's good money for a small number of people and um you know the taxpayer foots the rest of the bills you know nobody else has got any rights at all like the government actually answered one of my questions the other day which i was pretty shocked about because that really happened um and they confirmed
0: <laughs> i'm sorry did they uh, was it was the question are you going to answer my question and <laughs> they replied no
1: well that wouldn't surprise me because i mean anyone who's tried to get answers about the kangaroo industry knows you just get bounced back and forth between departments and they don't give you any answers but they did shockingly give me an actual answer to one of my questions and I knew you could have blown me down with a feather but they confirmed that shooters in Victoria do not have to notify neighbours before shooting because and this is a question I've been asking for a really long time is there any requirement to notify neighbours and there isn't fabulous I got an answer to something and uh, it's what we expected because we know that they rarely do Um, you know every now and again people will be notified but that's you know whether they're Sort of landholder wants to notify them or not.
0: Ridiculous.
1: Mm.
0: Alyssa, thank you so much for your time. And let's hope that before the next program, we might be able to get together and read a statement by RSPCA Australia.
1: I hope so. I hope so.
0: Thank you so much, Alyssa, for all the hard work and to the groups who co signed that open letter. Congratulations for joining a very successful and quick campaign still waiting for an official response from RSPCA. A last-minute postscript to the RSPCA story. And I wish to thank RSPCA Tasmania for at the last moment, just before going to air with this program. I did receive a phone call from RSPCA Tas. They are removing kangaroo products from sale. So, there we have it. Nationally, RSPCA are dropping kangaroo products. Once again, thank you, Taz. Great you took the time to make a call. To shame all the other branches in the state haven't done the same thing. Now, that interview on Hatta National Park and the management and sometimes mismanagement of the population of kangaroos, specifically within an area known as the Mournpool Block. Within the boundaries of the Hadda Kulkine National Park. I talk with Brian Walters. Brian, can you tell us how and when you first become involved with Hadda Kulkine National Park?
2: Well, it was 80, I started with Parks Victoria in 1981. And uh, at that stage, I was the Parks Protection Officer in, it was before regionalisation, so that um, we had a merry band of um, gathering specialists in Melbourne and uh, parks were basically in their infancy and uh, we were exploring all sorts of ways to manage the land or manage the uh, parks for, uh, for the people. And uh, as part of that, uh, I became uh, the park protection officer. There were three of us. And uh, I, was, um, I was dedicated to fire At first, because I had a lot of firefighting experience with forestry. So I started there as uh, a fire management person, number two, uh, all over the state. And then as uh, we, the staff, became familiar with the park's assets and the problems and issues of land management that that entailed, we um, started to uh, direct our collective knowledge to how, how do we do things? And at that stage, uh, there was a growing issue or, or a known issue of rabbit populations in um, Ataculkai. Uh, the Northwest wasn't my bailiwick uh, particularly, but it became so from a fire point of view. And also, as the staff changed around and we learnt more and we started to assist each other, we uh, put our heads together about some of these management issues you know I had some fire expertise as I said other people had uh, pest animal expertise and um, still others had uh, what I could legislative legislative expertise and where we I uh, was some some something happened with parks that sort of gelled in the early 80s under the directorship of uh, Don Saunders who had a kind of open management style uh, in with a science base. And uh, so I call them the halcyon days where we were able to investigate thoroughly issues one at a time. And one was the uh, rabbit population that had a coal kind. Had a a coal kind that the the park has a long history of, uh, let's say, well, it was poor land management, really, and... uh, from the time of the paddle steamers and before, you know the graziers, the fence cutters, the um, paddle steamers needed wood, and um, and so it's but hadakalka in two ecological systems. There's the there's the Mallee type with Triodia infestans, um, porcupine grass as the understory, and then uh, that's about oh about half the park. And then a bit more than half, probably. And then there were the Biloke, Biloke Bular woodlands, the, the uh, dry, uh, semi-arid woodlands that um, made up the, the rest of the park. And within those lay the drainage lines, which were grey sediments. And on the grey sediments, um, black box, uh, the eucalyptus, uh, proliferated. So they were the three systems we were dealing with. The whole park was part of a geological system called the Warrenan Formation, deep sediments, basically laid down in a shallow sea and um, uniform, metres and metres of it. And at the time, as things started to dry, the um, sediments were blown about, started to shift, and then they were revegetated over thousands of years. So uh, the semi-arid ecosystem certainly adapted to these long periods of dry. But the issue was when you disturb the Balok-Balaa woodlands, it's a perfect. the soil is perfect, as, as is grey box um, sediments, perfect for rabbits. Rabbits do, don't do so well in the Triodia grasslands and Mallee, it's a bit harsh for them. Also, the triodia limits what they can do. I like a kind of natural barbed wire fence, really, if you like. So the, the rabbits did proliferate in the Bala woodlands. And uh, when you dig it, when rabbits dig in that sand, there's enough moisture, there's enough, enough cohesion for the tunnels to stay up. So they were big, big, big colonies, you know, big warrens, big. And former land manager was, was the uh, land, lands department, and the lands department were always a bit thin on the ground and short of resources, but they did their best with what they had, and um, which wasn't much in those days, and would repeatedly um, do all systems known at the time to control the rabbits. And it was, was a hole in the sand in which you threw money, basically, and they weren't getting anywhere. It was just a repeating operation and nothing was Anyway, when uh, Parks um, had a colkine, I think, became a park in, I can't remember exactly, 78 or something like that, late. Uh, you could check that. But, um, and Parks management took over. We realised that we actually couldn't afford, Parks couldn't afford to keep doing rabbit control as has been done because we just didn't have that sort of money. So, we put our collective heads together, and um, the uh, pest animal guys at the time thought look we 'll we'll start a beech head in the most affected area, and we 'll put a, a rabbit proof fence around it, so we only have to deal with this bit and and then they introduced all sorts of techniques like a blade plow, for instance um there was um 1080 poisoning, which uh, didn't wasn't really a thing that parks wanted to do, obviously because you're trying to look after um, all the native stuff. Anyway, uh, various um, means by which and this became fascinating, means by which we could do area quite large, extensive areas of um, 1080 poisoning. Uh, as the initial knockdown and then a the follow-up with, um, you know, as farmers do with two or three other techniques, uh, blade plough and, and rippy were the next. Now, the we thought, oh, look, we, we knew that uh, eastern grey kangaroos and red kangaroos were susceptible to 1080, and this was a real breakthrough, actually, uh, where we, we tried something else. So we calculated what the take rate was, of the, the, the uh, rabbit population. We had a good idea of the rabbit size of the rabbit population, and we calculated the take rate by you feed them. What you do is you just put out um, unpoisoned carrot, let's say, and you measure the rate that it's taken and then correlate that with the population of rabbits. And then you can adjust the dose so that you should just get the top off the rabbits without... Any excess, but we still had the problem of non-target species. Now, as emus and and western grey kangaroos are not susceptible to 1080. You can you can bucket them through an emu, and it's a curious thing, and it suggests that western grey kangaroos have come all the way across the Nullarbor by you know evolving because the natural 1080 plants. Uh, are in Western Australia, and both emu and uh, possibly because of their metabolism, but but certainly uh, Western grey kangaroos were not susceptible to 1080. So that was a plus. Anyway, reds, Western greys, and Eastern greys are all exist coexisting in the area we have to treat. So we came up with this radical idea, and I was part of part of the uh, the action at this stage. We. Um, Baited late at night in specific areas, and in each of the area we had a high point in each of our sub subsets of sub zones, and uh, from that point we had an observer with a spotlight uh, with a two or three hundred meter um, view, and we had two horsemen allocated to each light, and the horsemen would say there's three kangaroos moving towards the edge of the bait area in the northwestern direction, right over there now and push them away. And we did that all night.
0: This was your field control method to stop
2: secondary or you know, That's target, right. target species? Problem. That's right. And I'm glad to say, you know, we didn't kill any any macropods at all. You know, we, we looked for the next week and because uh, you, you've got to count the success of your baiting anyway for the target per, per, um, rabbits and rabbits. Um, not all rabbits die underground in 1080. So part of the next the next two or three field days is to scour the place for rabbit, for dead rabbits, surface rabbits, and bury them. So um, otherwise, you get you, you obviously get second secondary poisoning from predators of you know, all sorts.
0: Part of it, there was the birds of prey, the eagles, but also the goannas as well.
2: Yeah, the, yeah, the go- The goannas will tolerate a fair bit of it, but they won't tolerate you know a big Dose, um, but I, as I remember, actually, as I remember, I don't think we we didn't use 1080. Actually, we used Pindone because we had to do it twice. I remember, and Pindone had a, a lesser effect. And also, you've got a, a vitamin K injection will bring a, an affected animal back, as you know. So anyway, that was a, quite a large, quite a it was a success. And from there, we were able to then start. Physically altering burrow systems, and it took took a couple of years, two or three years, to get around this one. And it it turned out that that block became Mournpool Block because we had a there were existing there were two very long existing fences from from old settlement uh, in in existence, and we um, brought them up to rabbit-proof standard, and then we. Finished the other uh, two, so- one side actually, because it came back to the highway, with um, with rabbit netting. So we had three sides, and the the rest had a openish fence to the to the uh, to the road to the um, sunset uh, highway. But we knew there weren't all, all 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 our data said there weren't too many rabbits there because over the road was farmland also, and it was mallee. So that kind of management zone was was about six thousand six thousand hectares.
0: Was that too big, Brian? Do you think that was too big to start with?
2: We were we're cutting costs using the existing well. Two things, we're using the existing fences. Secondly, that the rabbit had had two major ecological systems: the black box woodland, and the and the below. The Bala, the native pine woodland, which was really degraded and blowing, we had a main. The main road, as you know, goes up the middle. The Mournful Road, uh, right through the middle, and um, we had dune. We had blowing dunes covering that road every second year, and we and we'd put big machinery in to 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 either move the road or try and stop it.
0: I remember on my first trip to Hatikulkin, uh there was a sand drift right across the
2: track. That's right.
0: Uh, track. But beyond the loose drift, you still see the plough scrape marks. And exactly. And there were some uh, small amounts of active planting that had taken place to try and stabilise those dunes. That's so right. I've got a good idea of the area. Okay. Well, that
2: planting, that planning did uh, was it did work in in a, up to a point and this leads me on to my next leap in the management, we we actually managed to get for the first time um, rabbits under some sort of management and to a point where we didn't have to put in the same amount of money every year to control them. It was was attenuating. And mind you, you you still have to uh, go to the second and third management issues almost in the end we were just had one or two operators with a with a quad runner and a shovel cleaning up the last rabbit problems and uh but we had success but then we noticed that as as the as the vegetation was released from the from the rabbits the kangaroos thought oh this is good we have never had this good for years and so uh, we started to monitor the kangaroos. We didn't actually know it was. This was a secondary issue at this stage. And then we we tracked the. We counted every year for five, six years, seven years, and we found this curve. This is a fascinating point. I can tell tell your audience. Um, I, I learned a lot from this right there, and I've used it often. But um, there's an intrinsic growth rate in every, probably in every animal population, but. In a kangaroo population, there's an intrinsic growth rate and it's an exponential equation for those listeners who know about this stuff. But, and the equations, uh, y equals e to the minus r. And minus r is the intrinsic growth rate. That's just the kind of help, um, arithmetic way of speaking. it. But what we found out, didn't know then, but we found out um, as we went along, That the intrinsic growth rate is peculiar to each population, and why? Because the environmental factors that are acting on the population uh, push the curve flat, or 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 not, or less flat. And it was that gradient, that boom gradient, we got that we realised we're going to even something's happening here, and we're not going to be able to catch this. Uh, and the, really what happened is that kangaroos became the dominant grazer, moved in where the rabbits had been, and um, had very successful breeding. From memory, Brian, uh,
0: the years you're referring to would have been like 85 to 88, where the Mournpool block uh, experienced a large increase. Now, of course, uh, kangaroos are slow breeders. Yes. And... Uh, were you aware of the local event of migration of the kangaroo natural population out of the Rack and Sunset Country towards the Hadda Lakes?
2: Uh, we didn't. I've heard of it and and uh, we didn't see it. Reds, yes. We saw a movement of reds, but for western greys, which were predominant then, there weren't too many eastern greys. It was probably From memory, it was only about 2.5% of the population, predominantly Western greys, and we found that they were particularly sedentary. There were no mass movements. In fact, to our chagrin, we we pushed numbers of animals uh, past their ability to absorb new environments, and they died from stress. And I could come to that in the muster oh whose oh, whose who's great idea was that brian i'm glad to say that was mine that one. Oh,
0: mate you're joking
2: well we had an issue well it wasn't entirely mine the, the background history of it was that we had all the data to say the population of the eastern of western grays is uh forget was about 50 48 per square kilometer and rising it got to 103 in the end under three per square K, which you know, it's. It, I can tell you from what I know now, um, at a, at about thirty animal. Well, we think in that semi-arid stuff, ten, maybe ten, less than ten animals per square kilometer is is what you get over a long time. At thirty per square kilometer, you're getting all the all the farmers are saying there's too many. I'm I'm lo- you know I'm losing resource. There's too many kangaroos at 30. At 40, we knew that there was environmental detrimental effects to the environment, and we had 75 and it got, as I said, up to 103 per square kilometre in that, in that, all that block that Bala woodland outside the Mornpool block as well. So, um, we, you know, the issue of our oh, what do we do? What do you do when you've got an overabundance? You kill things. And, and uh, people, including the RSPCA, say you can't kill things. This is a national park. you got it. And, and Laurie Levy, bless him, said you can't kill things. you got to find another way. And uh, I was in the box seat at that stage and said, um, okay, let's look at the options. And one of the options was that um, we would um, drop, Drop a little section of fence near the gates and ride, sweep it with horse horsemen, horse persons, riders, let's say, um, at a walking pace, and uh, lo and behold, we' take advantage of this exodus of kangaroos which would go off to the mallee or something. And um, it was all going fairly well. i've got to, I've got to say I've got to say some bad words here. It was going fairly well, Rob, and um, and of course uh, the um, the uh, let's say the media were invited to come along because this was some sort of really good special environmental management effect. So uh, as I said, it was going fine. We you know a uh, hundred animals would go out in Whiskate, another hundred animals. Go, we had we're looking at 2,000 animals, by the way. That was what was in front of us. And I'm going, oh, yeah, that's going well and nothing's happened. And we have seen the horse and they've run out the holes. That's great. And we get up near the final corner and um, I noticed there were kangaroos coming back past my ears, under my horse. You know, I thought, something's definitely gone wrong here. Well, I urged my horse forward and found that someone, inadvisedly, had put the camera crew in the middle of the gate. So the kangaroos were going, there's horsemen behind and there's all these humans in front. What do we do? We go back or we fling ourselves at the gate or we do something or the fence. I just went panic. They were caught between two evils, really. And I thought... You know, what do you what do when something bad goes? I just have to wear it, you know. Anyway, I spoke to the person who um, had unwisely placed the camera crew in its position, in, and uh, I wasn't very kind about it. But um, uh, so into the debacle, for, for the next week, we found uh, kangaroos trying to get back into their, into their, well, their, their, their core ha- habitat, this is, where, this is where western greys have an issue. Well, all of them do, actually. They get white muscle disease when they're stressed and they'll just <laughs> stop breathing fall over, you know, and um, uh, it's a known physiological effect. But I noticed when, when I was riding, animals would come up to where the fence had been. We let the section of the fence down. Where the fence had been... They knew exactly where the fits to be, and they were caught. We can't go out there; that's no man's land. Don't know that. We can't stay here because there's these, these horsemen behind us, these riders. Oh, what do I do? What do I do? And they'd run out a hundred metres, can't stand it, and they'd run back. Even when they had free, free, free country.
0: I have enough trouble getting out my front door when when there's eight joeys there yeah. uh, because it only takes one to freak and they're all gone in every direction
2: that's right yeah. so can you imagine it was it was robert was a debacle it was a very very bad management outcome
0: there is one thing that happened because of that i've become heavily involved in the anti-killing of kangaroos that had a cool kind national Good idea. well uh, i joined well, the easy. awpc after the 83 yes. fires to do wildlife rescue i was never a campaigner or activist yeah. Until some clown rode horses through how to cool kind driving oh. kangaroos.
2: The funny thing is, you know, it was the default option that we were um, pressed into by uh, by people in the welfare movement. All right. There were 10, some good
0: options available at the time. The one the AWPC really liked was fencing off smaller areas and doing active revegetation, and that's the one that we stuck with for ten years. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, good luck because. There's a lot of you have got a fencing's expensive with twenty. But we
0: already had the fencing what we jumped over oh, I see is, what the uh, when the rabbit proof fence
2: so was changed to, change
0: to kangaroo proof Yeah fence. yeah uh right in the middle of the worst one of the worst droughts this country's ever it was seen was bad
2: it was bad in, in but, fact we we wrote a paper on that in 82 83 yep. we wrote a paper you know we uh we looked at all the young born uh, at the beginning of the drought, and not one, not one joey got through. Not one. It, the whole cohort disappeared in that drought. And uh, as well as that, the you know the, the environment was going downhill. And we made a well. I made a film about it. This is interesting. Rob. Well, I uh, realised that all these things were adding to the story, and we weren't getting anywhere. And I, I thought we've we got to, we haven't convinced anyone who's looking in that we know what we're doing. And um, I took it upon myself to grab the um, the department photographer and um, wrote wrote the story as we drove up there and said, "Film this." And I grabbed a biologist that uh, worked in the department. And we made quite a tidy little film called. Um, you might hopefully you've seen it called uh, um, something of environmental change, thresholds of environmental change.
0: I haven't, Brian, but I will start searching immediately.
2: Look, look for that. I was really, really pleased with it, and um, and word got out. Uh, at this stage, by the way, regionalisation was, was actually taking place.
0: Oh right, Yeah. So
2: uh, anyway, just. I made this film before regionalisation because I had line control all the way, and um, the department had its, had its logo on it, and I was, uh, you know, I was part of the staff, and and it really con it really said everything we knew that you know think about this sort of thing, and the um, the education industry the the department got onto it and thought this is fantastic, and and I you know. I couldn't. I couldn't make enough copies. I, there's a way of selling these things through the department. You know, some sort of revenue exchange or something. And I was getting three, four, five orders a day. Can you see all over Victoria? This is the best thing we've seen about land management, but donkeys is. So I was just sending them off, you know. And then um, I got this. The department said, "Stop selling those. Stop those." Videos. And I said, well, what's wrong with it? You haven't, you're not wearing the logo on your shirt. And the regional manager um, wasn't informed. And he's now saying that these weren't official uh, film and um, it's to be banned. <laughs> I looked at it just recently. It's really good.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm keen, Brian. I'm can Tell me, okay, that was 84, right? The yeah. drive? Yeah. The secret kill was seven hundred and eighty-seven. Were shot.
2: Uh, we weren't. We weren't sure. Of I the, think
0: that was August, from memory. That'd be
2: right. We um, we thought we were on. We thought we understood the ecological imperative—that is, density versus um, vegetation decline—and um, but we didn't have a handle on the demography. You know what I mean by demography? We didn't know what the age groups were in all in all the uh, in the population and without knowing this this led to a, a number of papers and and which which had been followed up all over the country actually we didn't know who was young who was old who was breeding uh, how the population managed to form that intrinsic growth rate that i told you about because if you change one of the if you change the demography of the population, uh, the gradient of the population growth changes. So we uh, shot 754 animals as, um, because that was, uh, we thought, oh, well, if we're going to cull these animals anyway, we better get some data out of them. And uh, so it was basically to recover data and sure enough. Uh, Uh, Graham Coulson, myself, and a guy called uh, Grant Norbury wrote a paper for Australian Wildlife Research called The Demography of Western Grey Kangaroo Populations in Atacolkine National Park. And for the first time, we had an analysis of who was who and who was doing the breeding. And that's led to a whole lot more revelations about how kangaroo populations act together. So that, that's where that came from. It was um, was a data gathering exercise, and 750 kangaroos, unfortunately, lost their lives and yielded up. So
0: uh, after this kill, uh, there was a huge outroar. I know it, it was one of the times when in the environmental movement joined together, yeah. the um, animal welfare movement, yeah. and everyone was in uproar, but then, like, nothing happened from... Eighty-four to nineteen ninety. Was there any active regeneration done in the park in that period? Do you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. We, we were putting heaps of money into um, after the rabbits. We, uh, we were direct seeding and and um, and uh, working out systems of uh, reseeding the sand, the denuded sand ridges, with uh, in all kinds of spiral patterns. With um, I remember uh, sp- them. Yeah. Yeah, and seeds, co- seeds coated in um, clay and um, and a bitumised coating so that the ants wouldn't take them away. Getting, we we found that the ants were burying everything too deep to to uh, come good. And then we tried uh, experimental fire. We'd bring in um, we'd bring in uh, hay, uh, not hay uh, straw, and lay it over the grounds to get enough uh, heat energy into the seed system to liberate the seeds because many, you know, as you know, Mallee. So all these things were going on and at the same time we were trying to bring the uh, animal welfareists to the same level of understanding that we, we had and uh, that is, you know, there are all these factors, please come and look at them. And we had a, you might remember, Peter Proust was there, but we had a, we had a an open, uh, what was it a seminar that everyone was invited, everyone, and uh, we it was at Melbourne Uni. It was at Melbourne Uni, and um, I think it was Melbourne Uni. It might have been a trades hall or something. I can't remember. But we had four or five uh, scientists on the panel who could, and then we told the story. I think we showed the film. I can't remember. Told the story, and we said. Ask us anything you like, ask us, you know, and we'll try and tell you because we already, you know, you already know some of your listeners might say, well, how do I tell the age of kangaroos? Now, here's an interesting biological fact. The manatee, the elephant and the kangaroo all share uh, this phenomenon called um, molar progression. They they grow a molar at the back here at the back of the jaw and and it progresses forward Uh, forward, 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 until it's reached the end of its useful life and worn out, they shed it. And another one follows. Well, if you have a skull of a kangaroo, you can tell it's age within a month because all this data was done at CSIRO years and years and years ago by a guy called Bill Poole who knew the ages of all the animals, looked at the the progression of their teeth and and did beautiful graphs of age versus two tooth uh, molar progression. So by looking at those, we knew who was who and who, how old they were, the animals were, and that, that gave us the basis for that demography paper. Now, that was, that's really important because if you, if you don't know who's doing the breeding and what, the, what they're going to do next, you don't know anything, really. So we had all this data. We presented it to uh, anyone who would listen, um, and then I love, this is the end. Of, I'm coming up to the end of the story, Rob, and this is the bit that still sticks in my neck right there. We did our best. Those, I was in, into my fourth, 12th year of trying to tell this story uh, to anyone who listened. And uh, the audience seemed, we're not happy. We're not happy about it. We don't want you to kill any kangaroos. If uh, you've, you've tried all options and that sort of thing, um, but you put a cogent cl- case to us, let's, we'll accept that on the conditions you keep us informed. And I, and I said, well, we can't do better than that, but uh, I'll take responsibility for all this. And um, I said, well, have a go and let's see what happens. You know? And I said, well, it's going to take, from what we know, it'll take 15 years or the vegetation to move through, it's from where it is now to a state that is stable and representative of the sort of thing we're looking for. In fact, it took 20, uh, but 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 the audience said, All right, well, the welfare group said, All right, we'll, we'll go with it. We don't like it, we'll go with it. And so we started on the infamous uh, cull, um, and everything was. Going according to some sort of plan, we had a very accurate plan. And um, Ryan,
0: can I just clarify? And yeah. I've I've seen and heard. Look, over time, numbers really don't mean that much. No. But at this point, from the numbers that stick in my mind, was that the DCNE said there were twenty-three thousand kangaroos in the Kukai National Park, and they wanted to kill seventeen thousand of them.
2: No. We never said that there were two thousand kangaroos in the Mournpool Block, and we wanted to kill about thirteen hundred. 1,300. The outside the park, we said, we this was a this was a statement of legitimacy to those who were giving us the currency to do this, this, to accept what we're trying to do. We said, we will only this is an experiment. We will only work within the Mournpool Block because. We don't know the outcome, and if, if we've got it right, we will see results in five or six years. If we've got it wrong, you can crucify us. And they said, we'll go along with that. We can't do better than that. Well, here comes the nub of the story, Robbie.
0: I know what's coming. I was there.
2: I got a phone call anonymously uh, at my desk in the, in Parks, Uh Two days after the culling had started, and I said, "Oh, there's all sorts of shooting kangaroos going up and down along the river, cut the and Angelok." And I said, "No, isn't that it's it's fox hunters and no. I'm telling you the, the corps said there is culling of kangaroos going on um, with uh, shooters that you're using. And I said, That's, that, can't, "That can't be right." And I went to my boss at the time and said, I've "Got this." Story about can- people, someone killing kangaroos outside the mine pool fence. He said, "You've got to be joking." After all, you know the twelve years we'd put in. And I said, "Well, someone better investigate it." And um, and so I said, "I can only do one thing here, and I was, I've got to go back to the client group who has supported us and blow the whistle," which I did. And my boss said you know Section 22, S22 of the Public Service Act? And I said, is that the one that uh, says that a public servant shall not make a public statement without the agreement of the permanent head? He said, that's the one. And I advise you not to go. And I said, well, I've got, um, I've got all these people believing in what we've done, and now for some reason it's all gone wrong and we can't proceed. I'm going to have to go and tell them we've messed up. And he said, on your head be it.
0: Yeah, look, three of us were up the park on the first anniversary of the starting of the, the killing and suddenly our peaceful night sitting around the campfire telling stories about the old days of kind and suddenly it sounded like World War Three in the background. Yeah. Uh, the regional manager went rogue, didn't he? Yes,
2: yeah. he did. Yeah. He was trying to appease the farmers along the river.
0: Now, the year before... The Scientific Management Committee said that they actually said that they they gave assurances that no killing would take place outside the Mornpool block (coughs) until all data had been collected and examined. (coughs) And I must say to you and the other members of that board, thank you for keeping your word, because as a result of that, there was a public statement, mate, pulling the government back in the line, and it clearly stated that as the they should have as raid. they should have
2: been yep. well yeah, I, that was
0: I, the moment that changed everything for on the campaign
2: well that that makes me feel good because i went back to the office uh you know and um someone said they want to see you upstairs <laughs> <laughs> so i grabbed i grabbed this grabbed a um someone to ride shotgun and said you come and bring your notebook and sit in the corner and record everything that goes on. And it became aware to me, Rob, that um, my uh, scientific career in the department was probably levelled right out at that stage. And and um, after that, uh, the regional manager got a smack and, um, and suggested when he met me next that um, I should never... Um, visit Ogan again because he couldn't be sure of my safety. My God. And I said, you don't have to worry about me, mate. I can look after myself.
0: Okay, on the 29th of October, there was this letter that I referred to and it was signed by Graham Colson and a whole bunch of signatories. Yeah. Um, And the only person who had the... Intestinal fortitude to sign it as a Department of Conservation and Environment officer no. was one Brian Walters. Yeah. Your cohorts that appear on this page um, listed themselves as Wildlife Management or University of Melbourne or other places. Yeah. No. But it's you stood up and wore it, mate. And no, I congratulate it. you for doing that.
2: Well. I figured we'd done our best. Um, you know, people gave us a chance to do something that hadn't been done before, and I, I'd had a number of uh, a number of um, fellow scientists said, keep going, this is the sort of management you want to see. In fact, i got a few pats on the back here and there, but as I said, suggested to you before, Rob, the moment was there, but uh, for all sorts of other reasons, we lost it, and... Um, and thus, uh, I put it to you that no real significant land care management uh, has been done since. And I might be crucified for that.
0: But, uh... Uh, look, visitors to the park, hot bush is still a problem, which is a yeah. massive problem when you're trying to control uh, the remnant rabbit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's what There's happened.
0: plenty great holes through the rabbit-proof fence.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, guess why? Because um, it's the same old issue... Uh, the regions have got to spread their lessened um, resource yep. uh, and uh, you can't necessarily do it. In in fact, now in hindsight, that, that shows me that um, uh, the poor block was too big because we couldn't, it wasn't only the rabbits that came, kang- but the managers didn't have enough resource to follow up
0: basically. Can I ask you a couple of tricky questions? Who was the absolute smart person who decided to bury the kangaroo carcasses within the floodplains of the lakes?
2: I can't actually tell you. It certainly wasn't me because I, I'd been arguing otherwise and have done since. Do not deep bury kangaroos. What you do is you get a contaminated aquifer because of, of uh, anaerobic decomposition and you get all sorts of, you get in that, it brings all the salts to the surface and makes the whole matter worse. Leave them, look, I've come to this uh, because, as you you will know anyway, well, after Parks and I parted company, um, I established my own um, environmental company and I was, uh, I was director of it for 20 years five years or something is still going but um, we uh, we've always advocated uh, ever since and I learned a lot here it had had don't do one big hit I was saying at the time don't do one big hit bring them down more naturally when there's a drought lift it off don't don't do anything let the drought do things then the next thing little bit at a time as if you were a predator little bit at a time, leave the carcasses on the surface, let the let the food chain dispose of them. N- you're not going to contaminate sheep uh, uh, well, tanks or anything like that. Leave them. Nature will take, but don't exceed about seven a week, you know, and thus, you know, you, over time you may have to kill more. Oh, don't select. Don't select. Oh, there's big ones. Let's get those. The breeding populations, or the middle size, don't select. Just as they come, you've got to mandate: if you've got to kill something, kill the first seven. Stop. Let them decompose. Next seven. Stop. But we've never been able to do that. We, we, it's not the way humans think when they have a collective um, administration. We can't do it ecologically. We just, we just can't. I've, you know, it's unbelievable how many times I've seen it mess up. Macapagnilles like the same. Why the don't Canberra, do it? The Canberra Parks, yeah. Canberra Parks. Just about because this is a this is a hide and seek issue, you know. It's whack a mole almost. We got to we got to shoot them, clandestine. This time we got to do it quick because welfare is to be here, and we won't be able to do anything. And we might, you know, an accident might happen, and we'll be liable. Well, that's because you haven't got everyone on site. You can work cooperatively, you, and it might be you could do a hectare at a time, but you'll get the welfare along and help you, you know. So... We had
0: that many people offer to come up there, tear yeah. down that fence and use the fencing material to fence off yeah. the Murray Pines. Now, I remember one of those trips we did up there, Brian, where the department threw us into the back of a Cessna Uh-oh. and flew us up to Hattac.
2: Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yep, <laughs> and... Uh, what was it, Professor Tony Lee?
2: Tony Lee, yep yeah.
0: And you were the only two people that asked me what the hell I was doing when I, when everyone else was looking at the exclusion plots that were full of weeds and oh, a wonderful collection of weeds. I've never seen anything so
2: oh, yeah, beautiful in my life. Breathtaking, wall to wall.
0: Twenty foot away, I was counting the natural regen seedlings under the Murray pine
2: Very alongside good. the track. Very good. And
0: only two people showed any interest. One was you. You probably don't remember it. But I remember you asking, why aren't you being impressed by the presentation yeah. ar- around the exclusion? Yeah, because you're life. too smart, really. And uh, Tony, uh, the only two people out of all those people that uh, I attended the park with yeah. and listened to the PR speeches uh, yeah. about how wonderful those exclusion plots were yeah, and well, they did
2: tell us something. But yeah, you got no, you know, they they're not an ecosystem, but they're just a representative of what might be. But
0: yeah. I, I stand a better chance just to rip down. Look, probably Nick, Peter and I, Peter Price and I, have been joking about one Thursday night. We're going to do a live broadcast from the back of a bobcat as we're driving it through <laughs> the Hat at Maunpool Block fence. Yeah, uh, we might send you an invite. Yeah.
2: I'll film it, mate.
0: (laughs) No, perhaps we could play uh, sort of like uh, an outside uh, cinema version of the thresholds of environmental
2: change. Yeah, we could do The, 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 uh, the corollary.
0: Oh, mate. Oh. Uh, they were times, and listen, I do really appreciate you taking the time to chat about this. I have mentioned your name several times on radio, always with the kindest thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Because I mean, we were on different sides of the fence; we were banging heads. We are. And we
2: aren't. We're, we're we're both searching for knowledge and ways through, really. And uh, you always know, made I would...
0: yourself available when I've had a tricky question, especially with the in the Echo Plan days as well. Yeah. So well, I've always different. appreciated. Uh, well, as you said, it's, it's an open book. It's your life. you lived it. I was <laughs> well, just there making wisecracks.
2: Well, I thought about this long and long. You know, uh, most the department sees every opposition as an impediment. But I thought that this is all part of the mix and we can't move forward. Like, like the Indigenous question, we can't move forward till we embrace everything. So everyone embraces it, you know, and we, you'll never get everyone. But we've all got to add to the voice. And I learnt so much from from that. And what I did learn from the resistance of, I call it resistance. This is pointing from the inside. Resistance of the animal welfareists. I discovered that we're not trying hard enough to find alternatives. Laurie Levy showed me that too, and that that led me down to that led me up the path of um, fertility control in wildlife. And, you know, I mean, you might uh, remember or not remember, but I actually bought i, I bought to the state the second fertility and wildlife conference in the world, and we ran it at Melbourne Uni, uh, and that came exactly straight out of the welfarist resistance. We've got to find other ways. So I was as naive as the rest of us back then, and probably still am. <laughs>
0: Brian, we'll call it quits there. I have learned so much. And as I said, I do appreciate you being so candid about a very difficult time, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. um, and Bits of it still smart, but um, I I know we're on the right track. Uh, And um, the great thing was that we had, we'd done enough to convince thinking people in the community that, to give us a shot at it, and I think we've lost that moment.
0: Sorry, Brian, give you a shot at it. That was That's a bad. That was a bad
2: plan, wasn't? It? To give us a, to give us a management option that might get us to a rehabilitation. But I do uh, ask you to source the uh, thresholds of environmental change because everything we've talked about is there uh, in graphic, uh, wonderfully filmed, not. Um, um, not acceptable words because, as you know, I was banned from selling it.
0: <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks, thanks, Rob. Thanks for your ask. Bye. See you later.
0: I learned so much from that interview. Brian, thank you for taking the time and for being so candid about what was a very difficult situation on both sides of the fence. Hmm. Hatta National Park. If you want to read about the campaign from the activist point of view, of course, you're probably well aware that the former president of the Australian Wildlife Protection Council during those years has written a novel about the campaign and the kangaroos of Hatta You can buy it online, go to the Red Sands of Hatta, and Hatta is H A T A H the Red sandsofhatter.com There's a special offer and if you click on that you can, Peter, the author, will forgo his royalties and make a $5 donation to the organisation of your choice. Listed is the Victorian Kangaroo Alliance and Australian Wildlife Protection Council. A, a, another group that you can allocate that $5 donation to and it's our Wildlife Rescue. That's Central Goldfields Wildlife Rescue. And believe me, $5 can do a lot. It seems like the people involved in management of kangaroos are still consider that they must manipulate the kangaroo to get an outcome. Right from the start, the Australian Wildlife Protection Council has promoted a more natural way of managing kangaroo numbers, and that is by changing the environment, actively planting out large areas of that grassland and turn it back into the native forest that once stood there. By doing this, you'll reduce the natural carrying capacity of the land and therefore reduce the numbers of kangaroos in the park, but it will be done based on the principle of natural selection or or survival of the fittest, so you are ensuring the genetic viability for the long term of the eastern grey, the western grey and the red kangaroo, although it's unlikely you'll see any of them if you visit Ataculcine National Park. This is the wildlife.